Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 through 28. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. You may be seated. Well, as you're being seated, let's, let's pray together. And Jesus, you are king. And we, we want to live our lives in view, in light of, in the truth of your kingship and your lordship. So help us to do that. We've heard your word this morning. We will hear your word. Lord, we know your word is given to us not just for our intellectual satisfaction, but for our obedience. Help us to be an obedient people. Not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team. Uh, I, I have a wife. Her name's Maisie. And when Maisie and I uh, were uh, naming our, our first child, um, I didn't get to name the other three, but the first one I got to name. Uh, and our first child's name is, is Harvey. Uh, Harvey is the name of my, um, my dad's dad, my, my, my papa. Growing up, we would drive from where we lived four hours down to Windsor, Ontario. Some of you know it. We'd drive to Windsor, Ontario, almost what felt like every weekend we would go to visit my papa and my gaga uh, in, in Windsor, Ontario. And the highlight of the drive for me was every time we turned the corner to go down the street where they lived, and sitting there on, on the porch would be my papa. He'd be in his rocking chair, his pipe would be in his hand, uh, and he'd be rocking back and forth, and he'd have a big smile on his face, and, and he was ready to, to greet us, you know, to, to give us hugs and kisses, and as a kid, most importantly, candy, right? Without fail, he was there every Friday, and on Sunday, we'd do the four-hour drive home. You know, as a kid, when you drive every weekend to Windsor, uh, you're a bit bitter about that. You'd prefer not to go to Windsor every weekend. You'd prefer to stay at home, play with your friends, do the things that you want to do. But seeing my, my, my papa on the porch, in his rocking chair, pipe in hand, told me everything was right with the world. Everything was good. We were coming to a place of, of love and welcome. But, but life as it does went, went on, con continued, right? The cancer forced Harvey off into the bedroom for rest. Remember that, that pipe? And later to hospice. And now, as I got older, as we turned on the street where my grandparents lived, we found the porch empty. The seat empty. The empty porch, of course, signaling the beginning of the end. Harvey's death was eventually followed by my Gaga's death, and our trips to Windsor became much less frequent. It's amazing, it's amazing how someone's physical location can dramatically impact your life. 
Where somebody physically is can either lead to a great moment or a terrible moment. It's amazing. The significance you can derive from somebody's physical place, right? It's the boat captain at the helm of a ship in the midst of a storm that makes you feel safe. I'm glad he's there or she's there. It's the athlete standing atop the podium, draped in their flag, makes us feel proud. It's the child taking their first steps away from the car onto the new college campus, makes us feel anxious or sad as they enter the kindergarten classroom. Okay, I'm fine. This is good, right? Physical location being wildly significant to us. We know this. And in many respects, where someone is, is just as important as who someone is. So let me ask this morning, this is a church, so this is the connection I want to make. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus right now? Where is he right now? When I used to ask this question in youth, you could see the youth kids being like, no, we, we talk about like what Jesus has done in youth. We talk about who Jesus is in youth. We don't talk about like where he is like right now. It's a confusing thought. It's a confusing thought experiment for many of us. Where is Jesus right now? How would you answer that question? Again, when I taught in youth, the kids would respond, he's in heaven, maybe? He, he's around us right now? Some of them even, he's in a Palestinian tomb deep below the ground? Where is Jesus right now? How would you answer that? See, for the past few weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, we've been tracing these major significant events throughout redemptive history. We've seen the source of our sin in Adam's fall. We've seen the hope for our forgiveness in Christ's resurrection. And we even last week began to look ahead at what will happen in Jesus' return. And and tracing these huge, world-altering events can be, I think, quite overwhelming. We don't know what to do with them. These are big, big ideas. And so let me give you another way to think about what we've been talking about for the past few weeks this morning. See, really, all we've been doing for the past few weeks is tracing Jesus' physical location. That's all we've been doing. Remember, Jesus was on the earth, fully God, fully man. Jesus was physically in the grave, descended to the dead. Jesus, who was outside the tomb, appearing to many, many people, all sorts of people, in his new resurrected body. Jesus, who did ascend to heaven. And now we know that Jesus is where? Doing what? Our passage today invites us to see that knowing and trusting in Jesus' current whereabouts has much to say about how we live and feel and have our being today. So really simple outline for you this morning. Ready? Where is Jesus and why should I care? Where is Jesus right now and and why should I care? You with me? Yeah? Where is Jesus? First point. Look at verse 24 and 25 with me. Let me encourage you, either on your phone or or like a paper copy, have a Bible in front of you. It's important that you're seeing. I'm not making this up. This comes from the authority of God's word, okay? Verse 24, 25, we're in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll give you a moment to find that. 
And there we read the Apostle Paul. He says this, beginning at verse 24. He says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. We, we know the ending, yes? We know the ending, yes? Yeah, we, we, we know the ending. The resurrected Jesus, it says, destroys every person, authority, and power who opposes him. This includes both earthly and spiritual powers. But what about now? That's how it ends. What about now? Is Jesus just on the bench right now? Just sort of sidelined right now, only to be called in in the fourth quarter to sort of wrap things up. Look at verse 25 with me. I think the answer is by no means. Again, Bible's in front of you. For, Paul says, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Notice this. Look at your Bibles. Verse 24 says, at the end, all who oppose Jesus will be destroyed. Okay? But what verse 25 makes clear is that until that moment, until that day, until he has put all his enemies under his feet, Jesus must reign. Again, Jesus must reign. So, so where is Jesus right now? The resurrected Christ is right now, February 19th, 2023, at 10.30 a.m., ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. That's where Jesus is right now. He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3.22 says this very clearly. Listen, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That's where Jesus is. The resurrected Jesus in his resurrected body is at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning even now. Right now. What does that actually mean? What does that mean? Notice again, verse 25 of our passage, Paul uses the word must. Did you see that? He must reign, Paul says. It seems a strange word to use, right? Paul could have simply said, Jesus will reign, or he does reign, or he just is reigning right now, but instead he says what? He must reign until he has subjected all enemies under his feet. He must, Paul says. I want to see, and I want us to see, that Paul uses this language because the first thing we need to know and get and understand and grasp about Jesus' right now reign is that this too is part of God's good plan that resulted from Jesus' resurrection. That, that Jesus' right now reign has always been a part of God's plan. It's always been his plan. If you've read the Gospels before, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this must language is all over the Gospels. Jesus saying he must do certain things, right? He's not like us. He's not like, I, I must get that booster juice. 
Like, he's not like, I, like, I, I must go to the salon today. He uses must sparingly and appropriately, but, but in a very particular way. See, Jesus says must most often in connection to his death. All the time he's saying it. Most famously, perhaps, in Luke 9, we read this. The Son of Man, what? Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Why must this happen? Why must Jesus die and and suffer these things and then be resurrected on the third day? Why? Because it's God's plan. It was God's eternal plan to do this. Jesus was determined to die for our sins, just as Jesus, Paul shows us now, is determined to remain on the throne until all things are fully and completely subjected to him at his return. It's the same thing. His death, he must do it. His resurrection, he must rise again. He is reigning right now, he must reign now. So if you trust in his death, if you trust in his resurrection, his reigning now is just as sure, is just as real, is just as much a guarantee. This determination comes as Jesus joyously and freely embraced the plan of his Father as revealed in the Scriptures, including his plan that Jesus should reign. Notice, we get a glimpse of this plan in Psalm 8. That's what Paul's quoting in verse 27. In verse 27, again, looking at your Bibles, you find quotation marks, right? When Paul writes, for, in quotation marks, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. See, Paul's quoting the Old Testament. Paul's quoting Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, God's good plan to establish the reign of his son is foretold to us. There David writes this. It'll be on the screen. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. See, when David's writing this, he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about people. He's talking about our relationship to the rest of creation as people created in God's image, as these image bearers. But prophetically, David is speaking. And prophetically, David is pointing to Jesus, the one who was for a little while made lower than the heavenly beings for our sake, to die on our behalf, to raise on our behalf, and to reign even now. David was talking about this. Jesus is right now reigning. He's rescued all those who are in Adam, which means... It's not angels or other spiritual forces who are in charge. Hebrews 2 makes this clear. And neither are forces opposed to King Jesus ultimately the ones pulling the strings. So so let me me press pause. Because I think there's a lie in our midst this morning. And again, this is the lie. It's one I'm tempted to believe, especially when evil happens especially when I witness evil happening. I think there are some of us here this morning who think Jesus, Jesus is uh, like, a, a, like a boxer who has conceded this round. He's just sort of conceded this round. Like he's a prize fighter who, who is currently getting pummeled 
And again, only in the last round, finally respond with blows of his own. I'm tempted to believe that. See, we heard Paul refer earlier in 1 Corinthians 2 to rulers of this age. And we think Paul is making a concession. Or we hear Paul in Ephesians call Satan the prince of the power of the air. And we consider our world, this city, even this neighborhood, Hastings Sunrise, as Satan's domain. At least for, for now, we make that concession. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. The resurrected Jesus reigns. And if Satan or powers opposed to the resurrected Jesus exert any influence now in our lives or in our cities, the scriptures make it clear it is both a diminishing power and a doomed power. It is not a power that will last. It is not a power that ultimately reigns supreme. Jesus reigns supreme. He is Lord even now, Christ City. Bible teacher Paul Gardner, he, he reminds us, I love this quote, the coming, indeed, is not a coming to be Lord, like as if Jesus will be king one day, no, 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 but the arrival or the appearance of one who is the king, who is currently the king, who is currently Lord, currently reigning and ruling. The resurrected Jesus is right now in charge, right now the boss. He's not assuming a different role at his return. He's revealing for all to undeniably see what is currently true of him. The, the picture then that we're left with is of God's people steadily advancing under the lordship of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, until the day of his return when the last enemy, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death. Death is the logical last enemy, right? Up until, you know, Jesus and a few other people got whisked away in the Old Testament, death remained undefeated. The last enemy, Paul says, to be destroyed is death. So let's talk about death. Let's talk about it. In the West, we avoid death. We sidestep death, we sanitize death, but in the church we need to talk about death. Let's talk about death. Culturally speaking, we find ourselves looking at two positions by and large concerning death in our culture. On one hand, over here, we have the romantic position. The romantic position. It's seen in things like the natural death movement of the 1960s, right? As a sort of figurehead for that movement, Swiss psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross advocated, advocated for embracing death as natural, as good, as simply our next evolution as human beings. And so Kubler-Ross wrote in her book, Death, the Final Stage of Growth, this. Ready? Be on the screen behind me. This is the romantic view. Growing is the human way of living, and death is the final stage in the development of human beings. She says, we must allow death to provide a context for our lives, for in it 
lies the meaning of life and the key to our growth. Now hold your judgment for a second. Hold your judgment for a second. How many of us have said goodbye to two grandparents or someone we love and then said something like, you know what, it was their time to go. They, they were ready to go. They were suffering so much. We know, especially as Christians, in the words of, of C.S. Lewis, that occasionally death can come to us at times as a severe mercy. A severe mercy. But at its core, the Christian must disagree with Kubler-Ross and her assessment of death as this form of self-realization, self-actualization. Uh, more obviously, in the words of theologian Alan Verhey, the failure, the base failure of this romantic view of death is its denial, very simply, of the wrongness of death. We all know, don't we, at our core, that death is wrong. It's just wrong. None of us would dare say or speak of the over 20,000 people who lost their lives recently in Turkey and Syria recently as having undergone some form of self-realization. None of us would say that. And if you did, you'd be a fool. None of us would say that. Only in a sanitized West, far removed from the daily horror and wrongness of death, is a romantic view even possible. So what we do, we, we reject the romantic view in favor of a resistant view of death. So romantic view over here, we say, no, that can't be right. Death is wrong. So, so we grab a resistant view of death. I, I think of the, the tortured poet, Dylan Thomas, and his famous line, I think you'll know it. Do not go gentle into that good night, right? Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And rage we do, right? We spend billions on supplements and experimental procedures, all in the hopes that our life might be extended by one or five or, or even ten years. Tech moguls, our gurus, speak of pursuing immortality in our age. And we applaud them in their efforts. So death now is no longer an assumed part of being human. Rather, in the words of Christian doctor John Wyatt, death has become defined by what doctors can and cannot do. Our bodies, he continues, are the battlefields where heroic doctors and nurses wage the war against death. Again, we can and should sympathize with the resistant view of death. After all, it's wrong. It's not right. To quote Wyatt again, the medical struggle, so doctors and nurses listen, the medical struggle is witnessing to the goodness of the creation and the goodness of bodily life with all its glories and vulnerabilities. Death, he says, truly is an enemy to fight against with all our strength, perseverance, and courage. So don't mishear me. But to what end? And, and for how long? See, the biblical conception of death rejects the romantic view on the basis that death is fundamentally an enemy to be overcome. But, strange as it might sound, we also reject the resistant view on the basis that death, in the Lord's time and by the Lord's hand, occasionally releases us 
from the curse of living in a fallen and decaying body. I want us to see Genesis 3 just for a moment. We were there last week. We're back here again. In Genesis 3, we read this. Then the Lord God said, so this is after God has pronounced those curses on Adam and Eve and the serpent, right? Then we read this. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's what's happening. Ready? God bars Adam and Eve from eating the fruit that would lead to living forever because the only thing worse than being under the curse is being under the curse forever. Do you see that? That's what's happening in Genesis 3. And so we reject the resistant view. The Christian view then is neither romantic nor resistant, but resurrection. For those in Christ, the church, as Jesus says, look at Matthew 16. The gates of hell, literally the gates of Hades, the realm of the dead, those keeping those who've died. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Resurrection is our hope. The resurrected Jesus is right now, according to God's plan, ruling and reigning. It is a reign that at his return will climax with the defeat of the last enemy itself, death. So, that's a lot of theology. And you've been very gracious and patient thus far. If Jesus is ruling and reigning right now, what does that mean for me? Why should I care? Why should I care? There is so much here, especially for those of us who come this morning with anxious hearts. I want us to hear it. Look at verse 27 and 28 with me. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in the subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let me just read that again. This time I'm going to fill in the names for you. It's a bit confusing. For God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, God, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That's Jesus. When all things are subjected to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to God who put all things in subjection under Jesus. That God may be all in all. The two persons of the Trinity interacting with one another here. Engaging with one another here. This is the order of which we spoke of last week. An order that will be in place when all things are subjected to Jesus. At Christ's return, each thing and person and place will be put in its proper orderly spot. Those opposed to the resurrected Jesus destroyed. Those who belong to Jesus resurrected with him. And Christ himself, as the head over God's kingdom, will be subject to God himself. This is the story, folks, that we're a part of. This is our story. 
The degree to which we live into the story is the degree to which we live our lives as faithful followers of Jesus. This story, from its beginning in Adam to its conclusion here, is ours. And as we should all well know by now, we all live out of, out of a particular story of what we believe to be true. Philosopher Alistair McIntyre, he wrote this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, right? If I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? So what are we to do with the story that tells us right now Christ is ruling and reigning? Why should we care? I want to give us three reasons. Reason one. Ready? We should care that the resurrected Jesus reigns right now because it is the only thing keeping us from despair in the face of death. Only a ruling and reigning Jesus right now keeps us from despair in the face of death. Only that. Despair, pity, we saw this a few weeks ago, that is the logical conclusion for those whose hope is in this life only. But Christ City, thanks be to God, that is not us. That is not us. Jesus' current reign points us to his future reign where the last enemy to be defeated is death. That's what the scriptures say. So we should weep at funerals. It is right for us to cry at funerals. Death is an enemy. But if we're at a funeral of someone who, have, who has died in Christ, our tears are tinged not with bitterness, but with hope. With hope. With promise. With the knowledge that, as Paul says later in our letter, in verse 55 of chapter 15, death is swallowed up in victory. It's swallowed up. The arrival of the one who is currently king means this, that you may not grieve as others who do not have, who, as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We grieve differently. We grieve differently. Reason two, we should care that the resurrected Jesus reigns right now because it stabilizes us from unfounded pessimism and naive optimism. Unfounded pessimism and naive optimism. In this room, we could probably draw it down the middle. On this side over here are the pessimists, the Eeyores of the room. I'm prone to, and something, I'm not making fun, I'm prone to Eeyore-ishness myself. Pessimism, right? And yet some of you are like eternal optimists. Things are going to work out, things are great, and it's insufferable. It's so annoying, you have to stop. Some of you just shrugged. <laughs> I can't. The, the gospel stabilizes us from these two things. Let, let, let me show you how. If Jesus is reigning right now, he's reigning over all of the powers, whether they be demonic or earthly, these powers are not only diminishing and, and doomed to pass away, but, but your pessimism then is, is, is unfounded is not rooted in the biblical story. Again, maybe you think I have my head in the sand, but let me assure you, I am the naturally dispossessed pessimist. But, but friends, the resurrected Jesus is reigning. 
He is even now in the process of putting all things in subjection under his feet. And so you need not be so sad. You need not be so gloom. What a witness a happy Christian is to this world. But neither should you be a naive optimist. Your belief that something like the kingdom of God will come before it actually does is actually harming your witness. For some of us, we need to do some recalibrating of expectations, reminding ourselves that we are on this side of Jesus' arrival, that this life doesn't have everything for us, that if we want everything now in its fullness, we want the kingdom now in its fullness. And that's naive optimism. It's not going to happen. See, in the end, a Christian at their core is truly neither a pessimist or an optimist. What do I mean? When the missionary Leslie Newbegin was asked to choose between being a pessimist or an optimist, with a smile, he responded, I love this quote, I am neither. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He says, I'm neither. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So if you're a follower of Jesus, all your economic and social and political views and predictions are subsumed in this greater story. I don't care how terrible you think things are going right now, we're in a greater story. You need to be reminded of that. And stop living your life as if this story here is the true one. No, see here, friends. Look above this. Repent and see here. Jesus does not become some appendage to bolster your unfounded pessimism or your naive optimism. Christ's rule and reign now stabilizes us, keeps us on solid ground, keeps us from either of these two poles. Reason number two. We're guarded from unfounded pessimism and naive optimism. Third reason. We should care that the resurrected Jesus reigns right now because in this truth we find assurance that he is working today even when we don't see it. Let me say it again. Jesus is working today even when we don't see it. I want us to look back at what we saw last week. Last week we saw that we either belong to Adam and die, or Christ, and live. But in reality, these two men not only stand as the head of respective people, but also the head of respective ages, histories. Adam, the head of one history. Christ, the head of another. See, when Jesus was resurrected, a new era began. And Christ, the head of this new humanity, if you trust him, has swept you up, as one author says, into Eden 2.0. This new creation that silently erupted when Christ walked out of the tomb. You've been swept up in Eden 2.0. That's true of you now. So here's what this means. Where you believe Christ is will determine where you believe you are. If Christ is dead, then you are dead. But if Christ is alive, seated at the right hand of God in his right now rule, then even now you are spiritually seated with him and your identity is wrapped up in him. Where he is, listen Christ City, so are you. Where he is, so are you. See, when we tell our friend over coffee that we're not satisfied with where we are in this life. We thought we'd be further. We thought we'd be richer, less bald. We thought we'd have 
We betray the truth that we don't know our own whereabouts in Christ. Do you know where you are in Christ? Ephesians 2 says that we're seated with him in the heavenly places, having received every blessing in Christ Jesus. Do you know where you are in Christ? And while you might always feel it or see it, Jesus is at work destroying all that opposes him, both in you and outside of you, until that day when everything is rightly ordered, leading all of history to this one goal. Look at verse 28. All of history going to this one point, this one culmination, that God may be all in all. So where is Jesus? Jesus is reigning and ruling over all creation for the glory of God. God is orchestrating all things, the life, death, and resurrection of his son, and our subsequent resurrections to one end, to, to, to one goal, his glory. Let me end with this. In John 8, we find Jesus being accused by some religious leaders of first, not being a true Jew, Samaritan, and second, having a demon. With his honor threatened, indeed badly attacked in this honor-shame society, how will Jesus respond? John 8, 49-51 says this. Jesus answered, I love when Jesus speaks like very plainly, I do not have a demon. I do not have a demon. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. In verse 50, look at this. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Again, let me ask, where are we, Christ City? We are in Christ. And if we're in Christ, it means our new creation identity has come with a new creation mission. Ready? Seeking the glory of the Father. That's it. Your self-glorifying days have died with Christ. Your days of making yourself look good, they're over. It's not about me, and it's not about you anymore. It's about God, and he, Jesus says, is the judge. Turn to him today. Keep his word. And though you may taste death, it will not be the last thing you see. Amen? Let's pray. As Jesus, we, we confess right now that our lives, even in this moment, we can feel it, don't live uh, in step with this story. And for that, Lord, for, for leading lives in a different story, one where we're the hero, one where we get the glory, we're sorry. We ask for your forgiveness. And, and we thank you that in Jesus that forgiveness comes. Father, help us to live as if we truly believe your son Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. We need your Holy Spirit to remind us of this. We need each other to remind ourselves of this. And even as we come and, and, and eat of your bread and your wine, we need to be reminded in the tactile things of our life of this truth. 
Help us now as we respond. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.